Let's bow together in a word of prayer as we approach the word of God. Our great God and Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed your truth and how we might know you and be saved. And I pray this morning as we open your word that you would grant us illumination by your spirit that we might worship you more fully and live lives that are consistent with your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are continuing our summer in the Psalms as we continue to look at different Psalms throughout the Psalter. And this morning we'll be looking at Psalm 113. But let me begin by asking you a question How's your worship of God lately? How do you even evaluate that? How do you determine how your worship is? Maybe you think about how maybe it's been dry or uh, maybe you haven't been excited like you have at other times in your worship. And maybe you think of, uh, of, a, of a, a, our corporate worship service. When you think of how's your worship been, you think of maybe how's your singing at church. Maybe you evaluate whether your emotions have really been in the act of worship. Maybe you felt like the emotions that should be there haven't been there. And it's common today for people to evaluate the worship of the church based upon the emotional response that's given. If there was a lot of emotion, then it was good worship. If there's not a lot of emotion, then it fell flat. But this morning, we're going to see that our worship is not determined and therefore is not evaluated by the greatness of our emotion, but by the greatness of our God. And so if you're not there already, I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word to Psalm 113. That's found on page 603 of the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. Now, before we read the text, let me just give us a little bit of background and, and broader understanding as we come to this psalm. We don't know when this psalm was written, and we don't know who wrote it. Some say that it was maybe during the time of David. Others say after Israel returned from exile. But the reality is we just don't know the the guesses are just that. They are guesses. Now, what's unique about this psalm that's important for us to understand is that it's part of what's called the great Hallel, or sometimes the Egyptian Hallel. Now, the word Hallel is the word for praise in Hebrew, and when it's used as a proper noun, it refers to a collection of psalms that were sung by Israel at different times of the year, kind of a a little package songbook, and was called the Hallel. Now, Psalms 113 through 118 were sung during the three great pilgrimage feasts of Israel. 
the Passover, the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Weeks. It was called the Egyptian Hallel because the first Passover was celebrated in Egypt, you'll remember, from Exodus chapter 12. And these psalms celebrated that exodus out of Egypt. And so when it came to celebrating the Passover, these psalms would be brought out. And Psalm 113 and 114 were typically sung before the Passover meal. And then Psalms uh, 115 to 118 were sung after the meal. And so as you think of these psalms and you think of the Passover and we think of then the life of Christ, right? Jesus spent his last supper with his disciples, which was the Passover meal. And so very likely, Psalm 113 and Psalm 114 were the songs that were sung right before they celebrated that meal. And Psalm 115 to 118 were what was sung immediately following the meal. And in fact, in Matthew 26, verse 30, we have reference to the fact that they sang a hymn before going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Very likely, Psalms 115 to 118 were that hymn that they would sing to get, that they sang together before leaving that upper room. And so we have here, even in the Psalm 113 that we're looking at this morning, a, a psalm that was used in the worship of God's people and even used by Christ. This psalm, very simply, is a call to praise God. And I pray that it prompts us to pray and to praise in the same way that it did for the ancient Israelites who read it and sang it. Let's read the text together and see what the Lord has for us. Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks down on the heavens and on the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's word. In this psalm, we will see three facets of God's matchless character, three facets of God's matchless character so that we would worship him as he deserves. The required response from this passage is to obey the command that's given at the very beginning and end of this psalm, which is to praise the Lord. So we need to see what is in this that should prompt us to praise in such a way. And just to kind of lay out where we're going this morning, we're going to see in verses 1 through 3 that we will worship him for his holy name. In verses 4 through 6, we'll worship him for his exalted glory. And verses 7 through 9, for his condescending or humble grace. 
Let's first look in verses 1 through 3 at his worthy name. The first facet of God's character that should prompt us to praise is his worthy name. Now, as I've made mention that this psalm begins calling for the praise of the Lord. He begins really with a threefold call to praise. And this repetition might seem superfluous or unnecessary, but it emphasizes the urgent need of God's people to praise the Lord. The, the writer here has a sense of urgency and desperation in calling that there would be praise going to the Lord. We see also that this call to praise is to the servants of the Lord. Notice the second line of the psalm. Praise, O servants of the Lord. This term refers to the whole worshiping community of Israel. Some have tried to limit it to just the Levites, those who worshipped, those who uh, carried out the duties within the temple or tabernacle, but I believe it's broader than that. In fact, Ezra chapter 5, verse 11, and Nehemiah 1, verse 10, use this term to refer to the broad nation of Israel. I think that's what the psalmist is doing here. Notice thirdly, uh, who specifically the godly are called to praise. Who is it that are to direct their praise to? It's to the name of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Now the first and last phrase in this psalm is simply the word hallelujah. We have that incorporated into some of our music that we sing. Hallelujah, which is a transliteration from the Hebrew and is a combination. You can hear the word hallel, right? We talked about earlier meaning praise. And yah, which is a short uh, form of the name Yahweh. And so there in that word hallelujah simply means to praise the Lord or to praise Yahweh. And so here we see to praise Yahweh or praise the name of Yahweh. So why do we praise his name? Why not? You notice that, that he, he says to praise the name of Yahweh, verse 1. Verse 2, blessed be the name of Yahweh. And at the end of verse 3, the name of Yahweh is to be praised. Here in these three verses, we see the name of the Lord is repeated. So why does he say the name? Why doesn't he just say, continue with the praise the Lord? Well, as we, you can, when we pull back and look at the whole Bible and see how the Bible uses the name of God or the name of the Lord, we see that the name of God is not just a title or just a way to address somebody as we might think of a name today. But a name represented really all the attributes that were, that were uh, included to that person. It represented all that God is and was. It really represented God. And in fact, in Malachi chapter 1, you can read there how the way that someone treated God's name was equivalent to how they treated God himself. And so the name of the Lord, the name of Yahweh, really represented, stood in the place of God himself. The name of God is his glory. 
We see this, uh, turn to Psalm 102, verse 15. Psalm 102, verse 15. It says, Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Again, the, notice the parallel nature of Hebrew poetry. So the, the two lines in this verse help explain one another. And, and the equivalent parts of this, the equivalent part of name of the Lord in line one is, is lined up with a fear, uh, with the glory in the line two. And so we can see that the name of the Lord is equivalent to the glory of the Lord. We see also that the name of the Lord is an object of prayer and worship. Turn to Psalm 7, all the way to the beginning of the Psalter. Psalm 7, verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Again, really an echo of what we're seeing in Psalm 113 is that praise is to go to the name of the Lord. And here, they are singing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. The name of the Lord also protects his people. Look at Psalm 20. Verse 1, David here prays, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble, and may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Again, may the name of God protect you, referencing God protecting him, a stand-in for God himself. Psalm 54, verse 1, we see that the name of God saves his people. O oh God, David prays, save me by your name. Save me by your name. Psalm 11, verse 9, we see that his name is holy and awesome. Psalm 11. There is no Psalm 11, verse 9. That was a test. Um, all right, I don't know what verse that was, but 110? 110, verse 9? Let's go with that. I could have, I could have forgotten a zero. That's very plausible. 111. All right, I could have forgotten a one. Yes, thank you, 111. All right, we're just group Bible study. Here we go. Um, Psalm 111, verse 9, the last phrase of the verse, it says, holy and awesome is his name. And I won't turn there, but Isaiah chapter 30, verse 27, says that his name comes displaying his wrath. Again, another instance in which it's talking about the fact that his name stands in for God himself. And so therefore, what we see from these verses is that God's name represents all that God is and all that he does. It, 
It represents all his perfections, all his mighty works. It, it, it means his character and his reputation. That's what his name means. Now notice in Psalm 113 that it specifies this name as the name of the Lord or the name of Yahweh. Now our Bibles, our English translations, when it translates the word Lord and has it in small caps, that's a signal to us by the translators that the, the name behind that is not Adonai, which would be normal case, uh, lower case, capital letter and then lowercase O-R-D, but when, it's, when the O-R-D is small caps, it means that it's, it's the divine name Yahweh that stands there in the Hebrew text. And there's a, uh, the reason it's not translated Yahweh is following a long tradition beginning even before the New Testament was written in which Jews trying to respect the name of, of Yahweh and potentially not wanting to blaspheme would, uh, would instead substitute the name Adonai for uh, for Yahweh, and thus they, uh, thus the, the term Lord came into usage in, re, in replacing that. But our translators have tried to hint to us the name that's actually under the surface there. The name Yahweh is, is really the name that God revealed about himself at the burning bush to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Moses is asking, I'm going to go back and tell the people that, uh, that the God of your fathers has sent me who should I say sent me? And he delivers his name. And he says that this is his name forever. This is the name that he has known through all generations. Yahweh, the basic meaning is that he is or he will be. And therefore it indicates that God is and that he wills himself to be. That he is not responding to anyone, but he is self-existent. He is the one that has... that is self-existent in himself. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's ever-present. His being is derived from his own self-determination to be and what he is. And so he is eternally what he is. And so therefore, the psalmist is calling Israel to worship the name of the eternal, the glorious one, the one who stands above all creation, the one who's unique in and of himself. And verse three and uh, verse uh, two and three, rather, uh, expand this call to worship by highlighting two other features of the praise. So verse one calls us to praise generally. It just gives us that command, and then it gives us uh, two, verses two and three give some more features that should define this praise. Verse two. He says that this praise should be unending. The praise of Yahweh, the praise of the Eternal One, should never cease. Verse 2 says, Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The psalmist is, is helping to put into the words of our mouth this fact that we want to see God glorified and God praised every single day from this day forward. We don't want it to ever end. We want to invest our lives and our time and our energies into praising God so that we would continue to praise him for all of our days and so that the next generation would pick up that call to praise and continue that praising day in and day out. 
It's to be an unending call to praise. Notice that it says in verse 2, to bless the name of the Lord. Now, we know that God blesses us, and like this verse, it says that we are, we are asking that God be blessed. And it's important to, to recognize and to, and to realize that, that the way that God blesses us and the way that we seek to bless God are not uh, equal. They're not equivalent. We cannot bless God like he blesses us. And so our blessing of God is, is different. It, it, we bless the name of the Lord when we recognize his greatness and his goodness. We see it. We recognize it. And we express our desire to see his name extolled and worshipped. We say, God, I see your glory. It's majestic. There is no one like you. And I want to see you receive all of the glory and all of the worship. And in that, it blesses him. The psalmist is essentially saying, I pray that God's name is treasured for all time. He wants all people to see the goodness of God and to treasure him. We see this call to bless the Lord repeated throughout the Bible. Psalm 41, verse 13 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Psalm 106, verse 48, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. Or J Daniel 2.20, says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. We see this idea of blessing the Lord and it extending through all of time. Because you see, the desire of the godly is that the worship of God would not end. They want his praise to go on and on and on. But not only is this praise to be unending, but it's to be unbounded, unrestrained. Look in verse 3. He says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. This phrase, from the rising of the sun to its setting, doesn't refer so much to each day as, uh, as could be interpreted, but I think because he's just spoken about time in the verse previous, here he's speaking about, about land. He's speaking about geography. And in the ancient time, they, they referred to the east as the rising of the sun and the west as the setting of the sun. And so he's saying the whole bit of land that the, from, from the, where the sun comes up to where the sun ends, I want that whole vast expanse to be filled with the praise of God. And I believe this, this desire, this phrase here, it really foreshadows a time in which this will become a reality. It's begun here through the church as the gospel went to all nations and now people in all lands, in all places, are able to praise the name of the Lord, but we still wait that day when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and all will see the glory of God and praise him for who he is. But it's here in this verse that 
The psalmist says the name of the Lord is to be praised or it could be translated deserves to be praised or is worthy to be praised. It is, it is right and good that the praise of God's people go to the praise of God's name because it's worthy, it's deserving of that praise. And so as we look at these three verses here and we see that the name of God is to be lifted up, it's to be praised, it's to be magnified in our hearts, we sadly must realize that the whole earth does not praise God as he deserves, right? From the rising of the sun to the setting is not filled with the praise of God. And even we, the people of God, have found to be our praise to be lacking at times. That we are not unceasing in our praise. That we often treasure other things than the name of God and His glory and His reputation. Our hearts don't unceasingly burst with praise to God. And therefore, we're often apathetic when it comes to the worship of God. The reformer John Calvin calls this criminal apathy. Criminal apathy. He means that such indifference to the great sovereign God is not just inappropriate, but it's wrong. Because you see, when there's one who is deserving of such great honor and praise, for us to fail to give that to him as he deserves, as he is worthy of, that is is wrong. And so as we see these verses, this exuberant call, there's exclamation points in the text for a reason, that we need to praise God. And as we see this, let's, let's hear and heed this call to praise the Lord ourselves this morning. We must remember that the, the worship of God is more than just singing songs. It does include that, certainly. But it is more than that. It is a heart attitude. We need to Praising God refers to our hearts, our minds, and our wills focused on Him. We know that He's revealed. We need to know Him as He's revealed in His Word. We need to love Him and enjoy Him based upon that revelation. And we, we need to then open our mouths in expressing praise. We can't just sit back and go, yeah, I praise God. And people go, yeah, right. Because if we truly praise, it's going to come out. It's going to come out. C.S. Lewis says that, that, that the expression of our praise is, is not just an add-on to our praise, but actually completes the praise. It, it, it completes the enjoyment of God by expressing our enjoyment in God. To keep it bottled up causes us to really question whether we really do delight in him truly. Because when there's something we delight in, we can't help talking about it. We can't help opening our mouths and sharing and declaring how good and how great. Maybe it's an amazing circumstance, something that's happened in your life and you just want to tell others about it. We, we love to vocalize that which we truly enjoy. And if we're enjoying and praising God as, we, as he deserves, it's going to come out of our mouths. It's going to come out in the privacy of our car rides as we just, our hearts are full of praise to God who gave us another day. 
that's going to come out around our dinner tables as we pray with our families and thank him for his abundant goodness to us. It's going to come out in the corporate worship service as we praise God together and recognize that he has, God is at work and has done a marvelous work in hundreds of people's lives just by evidence of this room this morning. We give him praise for his meticulous, careful, loving, compassionate care in each one of our lives. Praise to the Lord. So I ask you, is the praise of God on your tongue? First privately and then publicly. Has your family, family or friends heard you praise God? Would they say that you are one who praises the Lord? Is the praise to God for who he is and what he's done daily on your lips? Folks, we have so much to praise God for. And if you, you're not sure... We just need to open our Bibles and allow it to tell us all of the perfections of God and how we can praise him. Now, I think it's important for us to realize in our worship and praise of God to, to, there's the, to not to confuse praising God for who he is and praising God for what he's done. Now, who he is in his character and what he's done as he's enacted uh, actions in history are not in, are not uh, separated. They are inseparably linked. But there is a way to meditate and to, and to praise him for his attributes and for who he is. And there's a way to thank him and praise him for what he's done for us. And I think it's, a, it's too often and too easy for us to simply jump right to the praising God for what he's done for us. And that's okay. There's nothing sinful or wrong about that. But I think we also need to remember to just meditate and praise God for who he is because there is no one like him. He is unique unto himself. And therefore, our time meditating and thinking and restricting our thoughts and our praise to simply thinking on his character is worth our time. But it, it causes us to think about his unique perfections. And that is obviously going to cause us to then think about how he's enacted, how those character qualities have come out in time and space and history and in our own lives. Fortunately, Psalm 113 highlights these two realities. He first focuses on the character of God, and then he goes to the actions of God. And so we will see that now in the rest of the psalm. So we've seen, first of all, though, in these first three verses, that one of the facets of God's character is his worthy name, and that should, that should be enough to cause us to praise God. But the psalmist goes on, and secondly, the second facet is his exalted glory. The exalted glory of God should be a prompt and cause for our praise. Here he goes on to describe why Yahweh should be praised by all people of all time in all places. And he says, verse 4, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. The word translated high here in verse 4 is used elsewhere to describe simply being up, simply being high, like the height of the stars. Or it can also indicate movement, like the rising floodwaters of Noah's ark, as the water was filling up, and it says the ark was going up, was rising up. 
But figuratively, it frequently is used to speak of God's high rank, that he is first, that he is high above all. He occupies the highest place. But notice that he doesn't just say that he has the highest place. He says that he's high above all nations, high above all nations. And this is a theme that we see throughout Scripture. But one place I want to, to draw your attention to is Isaiah chapter 40. So let's flip over to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah goes in depth this reality of, of the Lord being exalted above the nations, above people. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 15. It says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Do you get the point? If there were scales and God was to be on one side and the nations on the other, uh, the other side would be like a drop from a bucket or as fine dust, barely noticeable to the eye and not, not registering at all on the scale. He then describes this, this, this height contrast, right? That God is so big and great and high above that people are like grasshoppers. We're just little bugs down here in, in, in size comparison to the Lord. And so here, Isaiah is drawing out the same reality that, that Yahweh, that the Lord is exalted high above all. He is in a class unto himself. Mankind cannot compare to him in rank, in status, or in power. Now, if anyone has, read, has, has opened the Bible to page one and begun to read, they would know that this is the case because there was no humanity and then this great being named God came through and created mankind from dust. And so it would be reasonable to conclude that the one who created mankind is high above, exalted far above mankind who was created. He's king of the world. He created it. But as we know, mankind needs to be reminded on a regular basis that God is indeed exalted above all. We live down here. Our eyes are set to one another. We're the same height as everybody else. And so we start thinking of things in terms of just us, lowly people down here, and we can forget and recognize that there's someone so great and exalted above us. We can easily take greater priority in our hearts of what other people think 
of what other people are doing. And I think we can see that that mankind forgets this reality and they're stuffing it down. It's a truth that they don't want to admit. That there is a creator God who stands above all nations, above all people. We see it in, in our culture's rabid search to explain life by simply material forces. It's as if they intentionally want to look at life and, and wear, and wear a, a, a spiritual visor or hat with a visor that only allows you to see down here and doesn't allow you to look up. They don't want to acknowledge the fact that there is one who is exalted high above them and that they must submit their life to. Because God is up there exalted above all nations. And so the psalmist here enables, if we flip back to Psalm 113, the, the psalmist helps us to look up the Lord. Who is this Lord that we're to be praising? He's exalted above the heavens. Above all nations is glory above the heavens. And so we look up to see as the scriptures reveal the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit in their majestic glory as they stand exalted above over our lives. But not only is he over the nations, but it says that his glory is above the heavens. Glory here is the word used all throughout Scripture. It's the Hebrew word kavod, and, it, and it, at its root it means something heavy or weighty. And only a few times is it, is it used literally to, to refer to weight. Um, only two of the 376 times it's used in Scripture does it refer to physical weight. The rest of the time it's used figuratively, either to refer to the weight of someone's authority, a person's authority, but often is used to use figuratively of the weight of God's majesty and authority. It can speak also of his visible presence with his people. If you remember, as the people were led out of, out of Egypt in the Exodus, that his, it says that his glory appeared in the cloud that led them by day. And so there was a, a, even a visible presence, kind of, it's been called the Shekinah glory, this, this something visible that was there that represented God's glory. But it, all, it carries the connotation of reputation and people's rec re, uh, recognition of his great reputation. Who he is and his greatness is weighty and more significant than anything else. And thus we can speak of it as his glory. And God possesses glory unlike anyone else. His greatness is over all, he says. His, his glory is above the heavens. Again, he's pointing to the uniqueness of Yahweh. He's saying that God's glory occupies the highest place. Nothing else competes for that. And so therefore, in this psalm, the psalmist wants us to see the exalted glory of God and to delight in it. We need to see that God is high and lifted up. We need to see that he is exalted and above all. We need to see his glory, which is more significant than anything else, and he is jealous for his own glory. He says it's a glory he will not give to another. And so we must praise and exalt God for his glory. Again, the context here is the psalmist says to praise the Lord and then he says, he goes into a reason which is because God's high and exalted. His glory is above the heavens. So therefore we should praise him. We see this call to praise him uh, for his glory 
in, in multiple places, we see uh, Psalm 34, verse 3. It says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Or, or, or flip over to Psalm 145, verse 5. Psalm 145. Just look. Let's start in verse 1. 145. I will extol you, another word for praise, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Verse 5. On the glorious splendor of your majesty... And on your wondrous works, I will meditate. The psalmist, David here, leads us to say that this glory and this majesty of God is something that we should camp out on, that we should focus on, that we should, we should set our gaze upon and, and not drift off of it, but to keep our sight set on it. Now, in this age of distractions and, and so many things calling for our attention and so much entertainment that, that even resides within our own pockets for many of us, it, it, we, our attention flits around to the next notification that pops on our screen. But we need to set our sights and our, 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 the, our, the sights of our minds upon the glory of God. There is nothing more significant, nothing more weighty for us to devote our attention to. And that is, we do that through the Word of God. Sure, you've tried to sit down and pray, right? And Lord, I want to praise you, and then. Our minds wander in prayer three seconds into our prayer, right? And that's where the Word of God is instructive. God doesn't say, hey, read my Word and then go and try it all you can in the power of your own strength to just pray. He says, no, I've given you my Word. Why don't you just pray my Word back to me? It's perfect. It's true. And in that, our hearts are blessed and are drawn to focus upon the greatness of God. So we pray with an open Bible. We read the psalm, maybe something the psalmist says, and we say, God, I want to do that. Please help me to do that. God, I don't see your greatness as, as, as great as the psalmist does. Help me to value your greatness like the psalmist does here. We turn these psalms, these prayers, into requests to God that God would help us to worship him. Back in Psalm 113, the declaration in verse 4 of the exalted glory of God leads the psalmist to ask a rhetorical question in verses 5 and 6. He says, Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks down on the heavens, far down on the heavens and the earth? Now, the assumed answer of this question is no. There, as he's just been saying, this is an exalted one who shares a unique story status with nobody. There's no one who's like Yahweh or can be compared to him. His unparalleled nature is, first of all, because he's seated on high, he says, verse 5. And this continues the truth that we just saw in verse 4, namely that God is high above all. But it adds the fact that God is seated above all, a reference to his kingly sovereignty. Thus, many translations use the word enthroned as a way to translate this word seated. Because where is God seated? He's seated as the king of this universe. 
Yahweh our God is seated on his throne and no one can be compared to him. This is a question that's designed to prompt the listener or reader to greater worship of the Lord. It causes them to consider that God is completely in a class by himself. And this question is employed throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you these verses for you to look up later. And each each time it's asked, it's drawing out a different feature of the uniqueness of God. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. In the Song of Moses, Moses asks this question, who can be compared to the Lord? Or Psalm 89, verses 6 through 8. Again, the psalmist there asking this question. Isaiah 40, verses 18 and 25. And finally, Micah uh, chapter 7, verse 18, asking who is like the Lord who pardons iniquity? Again, each time this question is asked, it helps us to think about a unique feature of God's character. He is unique in every every aspect of his character. There's no God that loves like God. There's no God that has power like God. There's no God that has sovereignty like God. There's no God who has grace or mercy or justice like God. He is unique in every single aspect of his character. But notice as we see verses 5 and 6 here, who is like the Lord who is seated on high? Verse 6, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. This contrast should stop us in our tracks to see that this God who we've been talking about has been so exalted. He's up there. He's, he's unreachable, unattainable. That God should have nothing to do with us. We're grasshoppers. We don't even register on the scale. We're like a drop in the bucket. He, I mean, why would he want to spend any time or consider us at all? And yet, the psalmist, as a prompt for praise, says that this enthroned one, this one who's seated on high, he stoops. He looks down to all that takes place in the heavens and the earth. He considers us. We are not forgotten by this great and lofty God. He doesn't remain in a lofty tower or an isolated throne room. He looks far down on his creation, it says. He humbles himself to concern him with that which is clearly beneath him. Now, there have been times when, and there will be times when God comes down to judge mankind, but that's not the point here. Here, his stooping over is to bless and to show unbounded grace. I think of sometimes those images that are, are, uh, that are uh, publicized of a president or some other uh, high-ranking official who stops in the midst of their busy life and running from one thing to the next to stoop down and to consider a child or to pick up a child. And you go, there's no reason why an important person like that would stop and consider a child in their their small little request in an infinitely greater way. God stoops down to us. His great power, he comes in grace. He condescended to us. 
He stooped down to bless us. He humbled himself to save us. And this is, as we know, the great glory of the incarnation, is it not? That Jesus Christ came and dwelled among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only God. And so in spite of the majestic glory of God, the Son shared with the Father, the Son of God humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Philippians 2 verse 7 says, We must be awed by how exalted he is and yet how, how far down he came. The distance he traveled. So we must meditate upon the glory of God We must see him as unique and it must cause us to praise him. But finally this morning, the third facet of his character that we must see in the psalm is his humble grace. His humble or condescending grace. Now when I use the word condescending, it might be in a more uh, older way in the sense that we can typically use the word condescending to uh, speak of someone who's speaking down to somebody in in a deriding way. But to use the word formally of condescending, of simply coming down to us. It's simply referring to the distance and the action of coming down. We say he condescended. And thus, it is translated that he, uh, in verse 6, that he humbled himself. And so as we just saw that God is exalted, this exalted God comes down to us. He stoops down to look at his creation. And that that declaration then proves to be a transition verse, a, 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 a hinge verse in which it introduces then verses 7 through 9, therefore describing how God has stooped down to help, how God has come down. He gives two examples to illustrate this truth that God stoops down to us. The first example that he gives in verses 7 and 8 is the raising of the poor. The raising of the poor. Now verses 7 and 8 are quoted almost exactly from 1 Samuel 2 verse 8. And that verse is found in the mouth of Hannah, who was the mother of Samuel, the prophet. If you remember the story, Hannah had gone to the tabernacle each year. She was barren. She had no children. Uh, her, Her husband had another wife, and she had multiple children. And so she came each year shamed the fact that she she was barren, that she did not have any children. And as the Lord blessed her and gave her a child, she then prayed out to God in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and it recorded these verses that, again, are almost identical found here in Psalm 113. But verses, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, says this, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The point in both 1 Samuel 2 and Psalm 113 is that God flips the fortunes of people. He takes them from the lowest place and sets them in the highest place. Even though No doubt God has done this physically, taking people who are literally the poor and dregs of society and placing them amongst kings. I think there's there's more of a reference here to the spiritual restoration and salvation that God works in his people. 
You see, the Jews would s- saw this description as a reference to their national salvation from the Exodus. Remember, I told you that this is part of the Egyptian Hallel, that they, it would celebrate their, their redemption from Egypt. And so even in this description, they saw that nationally, that they were taken as the lowliest of nations and brought to be amongst God's chosen people, and therefore fulfilling these verses. And it, but I think it also spoke of God's care of individuals as well. The Psalms abound of, of God's raising up a person as an illustration of salvation. And we've got a few of these on the screen uh, for you, where uh, Psalm 9, verse 13, Be gracious to me, O Lord, see my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death. Or Psalm 18, verse 48, Who rescued me from my enemies? Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. Psalm 27, verse 5. For he will hide me in the shelter, his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Psalm 30, verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. Psalm 40, verse 2, He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So here we see that this idea of raising up is is part of God's deliverance and His salvation and restoration of His people. And the same is true for us. The story of the gospel is that God, in His grace, stooped down to help us when we were undeserving of that help. He moved us from the lowest place to the highest place. In fact, I want to turn you to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. that describes this reality of what Jesus has done for us, of moving us from the lowest place to the highest place. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Second Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus Christ traded places so that we might be exalted, so we might know the fellowship of the Father as he has known it. Friends, this is the reality of the gospel is that we have come to be heirs with Christ, to receive the blessings that come through Jesus because we are united to him by faith. And therefore, we have been taken from the ash heap spiritually and moved to to sit with princes, to sit with the king. It's When we think about the fact that Jesus would have sung this psalm the night, hours before he was crucified, to realize that he was going to that ash heap, that he was going to that lowest place in just a few hours so that those who were sitting around the table with him could be raised and exalted and elevated to be united with him and know the status that he knows. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? No other God would move towards us in this way. But God 
being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Friends, we have been moved from the lowest place to the highest place, seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Now, if you are here today and you do not know the delight of knowing Jesus, that you have never submitted your life to him, you have never called out to him to save you from your sin, this amazing transfer of fortunes is available to you if you would but repent of your sin and turn to Jesus in faith, to recognize and to see that his becoming poor and going to the cross and taking the wrath of God was for your sin. Trusting and believing in that sacrifice to be sufficient that you can stand before God one day and God asks, why should I let you into my heaven? And you say, because Jesus paid it all. You can have that confidence and assurance today. Don't wait for tomorrow. Today is a day of salvation. No one knows what, when our life will end. I beg you, deal with your soul today. Get right with this this exalted creator. You can know him as a loving father today if you would submit and and repent of your sin, or you'll one day know him as the righteous judge who will rightly judge you for your rebellion. But the fact that God hasn't taken you yet is showing his patience to you. His patience for you to see his glory, for you to see the sacrifice his son has made on your behalf, and for you to repent and believe in him. The grace described in this psalm can be your story too. That he raises you up to seat you with Christ. Well, back in Psalm 113, to finish our psalm together, the second example that the psalmist gives of how God stoops down and looks and raises up is uh, by giving children in, in verse 9. He's talked about the one who is the lowly, the, the lowly man being raised up in verses 7 and 8. He's speaking about the childless woman in verse 9. He gives the barren woman a home, he says, making her the joyous mother of children. This harkens us back to Hannah that we mentioned earlier, right? She was barren. She was without children. And yet, God blessed her with a son. And so it's no surprise that another manifestation that the psalmist has that passage in the back of his mind, clearly fresh, that he would point to God's grace and giving of children to a childless woman as an evidence of the grace of God. Now, in ancient cultures, having children was hugely important for a woman. Without children, she would have no one to care for her in her old age. And it was therefore devastating for her to be barren. And it was shameful. And we see this in multiple stories in the Bible, right? We mentioned Hannah, but there's also Sarah, Abraham's wife. There's Rachel, Jacob's wife, and even Elizabeth in the New Testament, the mother of John the Baptist. And yet, this psalm highlights the fact that God 
in his grace, stoops down by giving joy to such a woman by giving children. Although a very specific example, we see God's grace as he generously fills the empty arms of a barren woman to know the joy of children, making her the joyous mother of children, giving her a home, it says. I think there's several things for us to think about here from this very verse. One is that God considers the burdens and cries of our hearts. Just as the barren woman cries out to God, asking God to bless, so he hears us in each one of our desperate cries for help. And therefore, it is an encouragement for us to cry out for help to God in the midst of our distress, to know that God listens and God hears and God wants us to cry out to him in our distress. And God delights in blessing his children. He delights in blessing his children. Jesus said, If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I think this verse can also speak to those struggling with infertility. Now, I don't believe this verse is a promise that God will give children to those who are struggling with that. But it does remind us that it's God's desire to give joy and give grace and to benefit and to bless. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God always and only dispenses good gifts. God has not forgotten about you. And it may not be with the giving of children, but he will bless and he will give joy. I think this verse is also a wonderful affirmation that in parenting, in motherhood, children are a joy and a blessing. Our society sees children as a, as a, uh, a barrier, as something that gets in the way. Uh, they should be seen but not heard. And yet they are a, a reward, Psalm 127 says. They're a gift. And so let us as the church be among those who have God's perspective that children are a joy and we delight in them. And so as we finish this psalm, we pull back, we see that the psalmist ends once again with a call to praise, reminding us of what this whole psalm is about. It's about praising God it's about reminding us of who God is and what he's done for us and allowing that to fuel our praise. And so we're reminded that our triune God is great, is glorious, and has done so much for us that we should praise him unceasingly. We should praise him because of his worthy name, because of his exalted glory, and because of his humble grace towards us. And may God help us to do that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this word of praise from Psalm 113. I thank you that you have made your word clear to us. And I pray this morning that you would please ignite our hearts to praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go this week with the praise of God on your hearts and on your lips. Have a great week. You're dismissed.